listener production. <clears throat> Take it away, my dulcet-toned Adonis. Hello, listeners, especially all of you chuggy, geriatric millennial listeners. <laughs> and welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a topic we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party. Hello. That triggered people. <sighs> Triggered. <laughs> We got so many messages from those of you who felt very deeply and personally attacked. So many, but also so many people were so funny listing like all the things that make them chuggy and it was so (laughs) glorious. Some of the suggestions were just chef's kiss. There was some really funny stuff coming through. But, um, yeah, it seems like chuggy has kind of blown up a bit as a concept the last few weeks. So. Mm -hmm. To the point where I think now it is chuggy to, like, I saw a tweet saying it's really chuggy to go on about being chuggy. Yeah. Shit. (laughs) Outwitted me again, those kids. (laughs) Those damn kids with a Z. (laughs) They ruin everything. I can't win. All right, let's get into... Breaking news, breaking news, I got the scoop. Bussy, extra, extra, read all about it. A breaking news. Okay. Wait. You forgot something. What? It's coming down the wire. Why do I always forget? Oh, it's coming. And it's the funnest part to say. It's coming down the wire. Okay. I added this one in last minute because yesterday. Caleb was away all weekend, so I I was at the shops and I decided to buy, like, a guilty pleasure comfort food that I think he would be mortified and I would never eat in front of him. Mm. I was at the shops and I bought a, um, like, continental packet pasta, Mm. which I, like, grew up eating, like, the Alfredo one, sour cream and chives one. There's also like a tomato-based one. Anyway, I posted it and I swear on my Instagram and I swear to God, I have never got more comments from people saying like how much they love a thing. <laughs> everyone, everyone really? was messaging me saying like, oh, my God, food of my childhood. That's what I ate after school. Oh, my God, that's what I used to eat when my parents went home. I'm pretty sure it was just all kids with terrible childhoods. But... um. <laughs> Every, like I, I would say there was like at least a hundred people messaged me about how much they love continental packet pasta, which I'm assuming you have never eaten in your entire life. Not once, no. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> was your mum a health nut in terms of food? Uh, she was when I was growing up and then in like early teens she sort of just gave up. So I would say no. But yes. Right. But Compared to my standards now, definitely not. But probably well, yeah, compared but to the average parent, yes. Your standards now are ridiculous. I just Draconian. mean compared to an average parent, mm-hmm. was she a health nut? Probably yes, because otherwise you would have eaten a continental packet pasta. Okay. <laughs> I was it's incredibly fussy, thing. though. I mm, Something that started fussy off how? as a dry product and then became a wet product. Um probably wouldn't have appealed to me. So you never ate noodles? Well, I did eat two-minute noodles. So, yeah, you've got a good point there. I never like creamy, cheesy, saucy sort of things, though. Okay. Mm. What else did, like, what else, what, did you have other weird food things? Oh, my God. I would only eat frozen peas and they weren't allowed to have touched anything else on the plate. (gasps) Like, I was one of those Oh, you were one of those little weirdos. Yeah. Mm. Caleb's mum told me um, that when he was little for, like, seems like a few straight years he would only eat mashed vegetables like there was a few vegetables that all got put together into like this mash (laughs) and that was all he would eat baby food (laughs) yeah basically (laughs) I didn't really have I just I never liked seafood and still don't like it to this day that was Mm. my thing but other than that I'd eat anything (laughs) except for calamari oh yeah I do eat determined that you only like because it does not actually taste very much like seafood at all. And Well, yeah, it's got so much batter on it, it could be a chicken nugget. Like, mm. And from what you say, 
with all your conspiracies about the food industry, it's actually made from pig intestines or whatever. So who knows? Which is why I don't eat calamari. Uh, well, I quite. I, well, I like really heavily battered, like salt and pepper squid, is what I'm talking. Where you can't wear it, like it, it's impossible to know that it's fish because it's just it's the fishy flavor of like. If I ever ended up on a deserted island, like in a lost situation, I would die of starvation because it doesn't matter how hungry I am. I don't think I could physically swallow fish without <laughs> gagging. Like I, it, I don't know what it. Everyone has weird taste buds, like. Mm. I could uh, uh, even thinking about it. Uh. So <laughs> continental packet pasta is truly the greatest food. It is just pasta with powder around it in the packet and you tip it upside down into a microwave container. You add a cup of water, like half a cup of milk and a big plonk of butter and then you just put it in the microwave for like 12 minutes and you have this cheesy, luscious pasta. And it's what I used to eat a lot as a kid, you know, when there was no one around to make me food. And even when I got older, like until I started cooking the last few years, I would eat it all the time. Like my older sister, Rhiannon, said to me once, like, Rosie, please just put some frozen like broccoli in it or something. Like you need, <laughs> you need like, <laughs> nutrients. And some vitamins. But, um, some vitamins and nutrients. But, yeah, it's just and I haven't had it in years because I've, you know, learned to cook recently and it I and I just went and got it yesterday and oh my god best so many people said to me I haven't thought about that in years and it is now on my shopping list for this week so you're welcome continental <laughs> <laughs> I could be a packet pasta influencer <laughs> I was gonna say was this episode brought to us by no, continental <laughs> no it's really not well, I mean the other brands make it but that's like the classic you know the original and the best Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes, yeah, so I just couldn't believe how many people responded to that post. It, like, really hit a nerve with people, I think, my age, like, you know, <laughs> who didn't have parents around that much, I guess. Although a lot of parents made it. My, like, I started making it because my mom, who isn't a great cook for a long time, would just, you know, make a plate of said protein, so, like, a bit of chicken breast, some beans, and continental cheesy pasta as a side. That was a very common dinner for us. And quite mm-hmm. a few people messaged me that too. So anyway. Hmm. There you go. That's important breaking news that you all needed to know. <laughs> Nine um. minutes of talk about instant pasta. <laughs> this is the kind of quality content that makes us an award-winning podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, other breaking news. Pocus mm. Pocus 2 is happening. Yes. Oh, my oh, God. Did yes. you know that was going to happen? Um, I've heard rumblings of it, and uh-huh. I follow all three stars on Instagram, obviously, mm. who have all been quite coy over the last 12 months, Bet, Kathy, and Sarah Jessica Parker, about, you know, maybe, and then they officially announced it last week. It's happening. Yeah. The gays I'm are going so wild. Ex- oh, I'm so... That movie is... Uh, one of the ones that I probably have seen about 5,000 times. Loved mm-hmm. it, loved it, loved it. So that's going to be awesome. So many people messaged us, and, of course, I was all over it. Bell Gibson's house got raided. Yes. How much do we yes. know? I've only we read the article nothing. you sent me. Yeah, we know nothing because oh, I wish the police had informed the press so they could have been there to take photos. But mm. as everybody knows, Bell Gibson, we've done an episode on her. You should go and listen to it. She's the woman who pretended she had cancer, then pretended she cured that cancer through her healthy way of living and then used that healthy way of living to sell apps and stuff and make lots Mm -hmm. of money. She's just a deplorable person. She got found guilty of, like, fraud, I think, and owes, like, $500,000 in fines or whatever. And she's been taken to court a couple times in the last couple years to basically say, I don't have any money, I can't pay it. Mm. And the judge is like, but we went through your bank statements and you've been on holidays and bought clothes. Like, how? where did that money come from? And she'd just say, I don't know. Mm. And the judge would go, you don't know who gave you this money. And she'd go, I wouldn't want to speculate. <laughs> like she's So she's getting money, they think, from her partner who she hasn't mm. married, I think, to keep things financially separate. But mm-hmm. she says that she's just renting a room in his house because they share a son together and they're not actually together. There's just a lot of really slimy ways of getting out of having to pay this money. Mm. And so anyway, I think the judge just got jack of it last week and was like, send the police to that house and start 
seizing stuff, assets, mm. to, like, pay this back. But then that's all I really heard about it because there was no press there, so they couldn't get photos. And so we don't know if she's, like, still going by Sabontu or if she's back to Belle. We don't know. (laughs) But also I think it would be hard because if, like, I think she's legally wrangling this whole thing if she's not actually with her partner, they just live in the same house to raise their son and everything's separate, couldn't they just say that everything in the house belongs to the guy? And so... You can't seize this stuff because it's not mine and he doesn't owe the money I do. That's probably going to be the tactic that they use. That's what I think they probably will do. So I'm really excited to hear what will come of that. Mm. But she can't get away with it forever. Like if you are given a fine to pay as punishment for something, if you don't pay it, does it get to the point where you get sent to prison? Is that what happens? I don't know. I don't know legal things. Yeah, wouldn't have a clue, but, I mean, they've got to impose some sort of justice on her, surely. What she did was so egregious. She can't get away with it. Disgusting. So, oh, God, I love, that was one of my favourite episodes we've done. Mm -hmm. Everyone should go and listen to that if you haven't. Oh, and my last little bit of breaking news is that um, the new Bachelorette was announced and it's Brooke Blurton, Australia's first Indigenous First Nations Bachelorette and first world's first bisexual bachelorette. Fantastic. So it's going to be awesome. And they've asked for male and female contestants to apply. And um, she got asked, you know, when it was announced on all the morning shows, she did the rounds and Mm. they all kept saying, well, what if people hook up in the house? Like surely that's going to happen. And she was just like, well, yeah, but I mean, if two people fall for each other, they haven't fallen for me, so why would I want to be with someone who hasn't fallen for me? Like, God bless. Mm. They've good. They found each other. That's great. Like, I don't care. So <laughs> it's such it's, an um, obvious answer as well. Yeah, I know. To like, a dumb it's, question. It's such a dumb question because you know because it's she's bisexual, and I think the morning shows and radio programs that they were all trying to make it really salacious, and it was like, no, it's just going to be the same. Mm. And some people might click, but. You know, whatevs. It's awesome. I think it's so awesome. I'm so excited for this um, upcoming season of it. So the question on everyone's lips then is, will you be doing any sort of mini recaps or just, (laughs) you know, updates on highlights here in breaking news? We have Um, had lots of requests for that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Oh, let me think about how we can make that work. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I can bring myself to fully recap whole, a whole season of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette ever again. Like that mm-hmm. part of my life is well and truly done, mm-hmm. but I do love the show. It has a special place in my heart and, um, yes, perhaps we'll just we'll just do some little mini, mini update recaps. Mm-hmm. Recap minis. Just by mentioning this, I can almost guarantee that some gistners are going to set up a change.org petition to make it happen. <laughs> no, no, no. There are so many more amazing recap writers now who I would argue are better than me. I mean, the best recaps of all the Bachelor stuff is um, Beck Shaw and Patrick Lenton at Pedestrian do uh, take turns doing it like episode by episode. Mm-hmm. And I think theirs are the funniest. Okay. So cool. they, they always do it so good. And so that those are the ones I would recommend you read. Yeah, so that was all my breaking news, I think. Do you have any? Well, I thought Keep you might. Keep it short because be- we spent 10 minutes talking about <laughs> half the pasta. So. <laughs> oh, and she's keeping it in. Okay, so that was breaking news. What are you sharing with us this week? Okay, I'm doing something a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, today I am telling you about a child star mm-hmm. who was so talented, people believe she was actually a middle-aged woman with dwarfism. She was the top-earning actress and top box office draw for four years running mm-hmm. who was dropped barely a couple of years after that because she wasn't cute anymore and mm-hmm. ended up, get this, the United States ambassador to Ghana and Czechoslovakia and the chief of protocol of the United States, I am giving you just the gist of Shirley Temple. So excited. So keen. I thought it might have been her when you mentioned 
accusations of dwarfism. Yes. Um, and if I remember correctly, there might be an investigation by the Vatican that you're going to yes. tell us about. Um, <laughs> yes. So excited. Take it away. The, the thing that gets me with this is I, I remember, like, seeing something about her, like, I think when she died a few years ago and I was like, Shirley Temple was still alive? Like, I just for some reason had thought she'd been one of those child stars that had petered out and then you know, died really sadly of some kind of addiction at 30. Mm. But she went on to live this incredible life where she was really freaking important in United States government. Like, her life is fascinating. So I just thought I'll give you just the gist of Shirley T. Educate us. Yeah, here we go. Okay. Shirley Temple was born in 1928 in Santa Monica, California, which is, you know, California is a huge state, but Santa Mm. Monica is right where Hollywood is. Like this is right in movie-making territory. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mom was just a homemaker housewife. Her dad worked at a bank. She had two older brothers, but they were like a decade older than her, so she kind of felt like an only child. Her Mm. mom had been desperate for a girl and it had been like, 10 years since she'd had a baby, so she doted on her. And um, her mum had also at one stage wanted to be a dancer, so, like, that's where I'm just going to say, like, stage mother. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Shirley Temple later said that she got along very well with her mother and she never felt pushed into things, but, well, I don't know. (laughs) Shirley was extraordinarily cute as a baby, like astronomically cute. She has very famously these two little dimples when she Mm -hmm. smiles. She loved singing and dancing and performing. So when she was two years old, two, Mm. her mum started her in tap dancing and singing lessons. Mm -hmm. But she totally just wanted to do it herself. She wanted to do it. She wasn't pushed into it at all, right? Mm. And when she was three, her mum got her into the, like, holy grail of dance schools for kids, Meglin's Dance School, also known as Meglin's Wondrous Hollywood Kitties. It was created and run by Ethel Meglin, who had been a Ziegfeld Follies girl, and she'd been in a bunch of those movies, um, so she really knew her stuff and she really worked the kids hard. Mm. And this was considered, like, the performing arts school you wanted your kids in if they were going to be stars because the best of the best went there and it was the only... um, kids performance school in Hollywood that all the producers and casting agents would go to to scout Mm. kids to put in their movies. Mm -hmm. So Ethel Meglin was very picky about who she took on because she she wanted to keep her reputation of having the most talented kids around. Mm. Just a few years before Shirley got there, a young girl by the name of Frances Gum, a.k.a. Judy Garland, was a student there. (laughs) So Shirley gets in there when she's three years old. She's one of the youngest kids Ethel has ever accepted and Mm. it doesn't take long for a producer to notice Shirley and soon she signs a contract with a production company called Educational Pictures Mm. and they make a bunch of 10-minute short comedy films called Baby Burlesques. Ew! (laughs) I know. Burlesques is spelt B-U-R-L-E-S-K-S. So Uh, this is so messed up. Let me describe these to you. uh They satirise recent adult films but with toddlers from about aged about three to six playing all the roles. When you say adult film, you just mean like movies for grown-ups, not... uh, Grown-up movies, grown-up movies. Sorry, 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 sorry. grown-up movies. Kind of like if today, I don't know, a bunch of toddlers did a remake of Titanic. Okay. But it's all toddlers, right, in all the costumes and stuff. So the humour is that it's bizarre and funny and cute to see little kids in grown-up settings. So the Mm. more inappropriate the film, the funnier it is. So when I say Titanic and when I say the more inappropriate the film, they would satirise movies like, say... Schindler's List. Yes, or or, like, quite overly sexual movies, like maybe, like, A Star is born like or like mm-hmm. movies where there's you know really adult themes mm-hmm. maybe all oh, like um basic instinct like they would they would pick like these move like film because they were like well it's the more inappropriate it is for toddlers to be doing this the funnier it is uh-huh. so um in one of these movies Shirley Temple who was three by the way mm-hmm. let me say again 
three, played a saloon singer slash stripper who has two men vying for her love. Um, in another, she plays a sex worker in a brothel. Um, but it's all very innocently done. Like, so the gag is the kids have these huge cloth nappies on with like the huge novelty, like safety pin in the nappy. And then the top half of what they're wearing is some kind of costume. So when Shirley was playing the saloon singer, she had like this off the shoulder kind of like wink. It's meant it's like a little kid wearing a sexy little top like thing. And the kids would say their lines phonetically because they were toddlers. So they didn't know what they were saying. So that they would just get told, make these sounds with your mouth and then they would mm. go and say these really inappropriate lines. Mm. There's one scene, like, to convey that she's, um, you know, trying to deal with dating two men, they don't take it to the level, to the level like you think, but they, so there's one scene where she's um, hugging one little boy mm. And then while she's hugging that boy, another boy pops up behind him and she secretly kisses him on the lips. Like, whoop, I'm cheating with two boys. Like, (laughs) it's very (laughs) weird and gross. She said later in life that they were racist and sexist and awful. Mm. It's also where in her very first job, uh, abusive behaviour started on set. So not sexual abuse, I mean Mm. like, like physical abuse and like, it's, I'll tell you, it's so awful. Mm-hmm. So parents weren't allowed on set because they said that they distracted the kids. So while all these little kids' parents were gone, these kids were worked to the freaking bone. Mm. And they'd all signed a contract with this studio. So back then it wasn't like actors now where you just, you're in one movie and then you do another movie and then you do another movie. Back then you signed with one movie studio and then you had like got a salary and you just had to work in whatever movie they put you Mm -hmm. in. So Mm -hmm. all these kids had to do all this work and to keep them in line because they're toddlers, so they're going to play up and stuff, they had this thing called the black box and it was like a little shed. It had no windows. It had no lights. And inside it was a big block of ice. And if you <gasps> were naughty or difficult, or even if you weren't, even if you just like were missing your mark or forgetting mm-hmm. your lines, you would be <sighs> locked inside the black box and forced to sit on a big block of ice <gasps> for like until they decided you could come out. I know. I know. It's horrible. And it was oh. said throughout Shirley's career that, she was genius for learning lines really quickly and understanding where the light would perfectly be hitting her face while filming scenes because she was forced to get good at it when she was like three years old because they had um, bits of tape on the floor to tell you where your mark was. So that means Mm. you go and stand there to make sure you're in the light and the camera can see you. But you're not allowed to look down at the floor. You always have to have your eyes looking up but Mm. you also have to hit your mark perfectly. And these are three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And she kept getting put in the box because she kept missing her mark. She she Mm. just couldn't figure out how to tell where the tape was on the floor. And so then she started learning it by feel. So she knew when the warmth on her face felt a certain way that she was in her perfect light and she was on Mm -hmm. her mark. So that's how she learned how to do that. Mm -hmm. So there you go, parents. The black box method works. Tough but effective. Also, these kids are under contract, but they only get paid for the days they film. They don't get paid for rehearsal, which is days and days and days. And then they try to film really quickly. So the amount of time they have to pay them for is at, you know, the bare minimum. Mm. And also they, to pay for the whole thing, they would take all the kids and get them to model in commercials and advertisements and the money the kids would make from making those went into funding the movies. So they were being Mm -hmm. completely exploited. Mm -hmm. And her mother later said she knew it wasn't the best situation, but they were at the start of the Great Depression, which had started a year after Shirley was born. Like it was Mm -hmm. a time where one in four people in the country were unemployed. The stock market crash of 1929 meant her dad, who worked in a bank, was in a pretty precarious position. So they needed Mm -hmm. the money. And, um, Her mother was also hoping that it would lead to more lucrative opportunities. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, this is shit now, but she's good, so maybe it'll lead somewhere else. And it does because she is far and away the breakout star of the baby burlesque films, which, by the way, are on YouTube (laughs) if you want to go see them. They're bizarre. They are bizarre. (laughs) Um, But she is very good in them. So 
Um, I'll watch them, but I'll feel very, very uncomfortable. That would so yes. not fly today. If oh no, no, no! That sort of it didn't fly. Yeah, it didn't fly back then either. There um, uh, eventually came in this uh, famous kind of standards um, thing in Hollywood where you had to um, make films according to certain like moral levels of moral like standards, and mm-hmm, th- mm-hmm. those films were not allowed under that new system. So um, <laughs> you know, she was good while she was at Educational uh, Pictures making the baby burlesque. So they would loan her out to other studios to make movies for them. And then they would get a cut of the money she made on that, like for loaning Mm. her out. But then educational pictures goes bankrupt, probably because people are like, these films are gross. Mm. So she's free from her contract and she's five years old. And her mum hears on the grapevine that there's a movie currently being made called Stand Up and Cheer. And apparently the producers are really unhappy with the little girl they've cast in it. So when one of those producers happens to be going to a screening of a movie that Shirley currently has a teeny tiny part in, mm. Ethel, her mum, makes sure that Shirley is there dancing in the foyer of the theatre when he comes out. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm not a stage mother. Um, so he sees her and he's like, oh, you were just to that movie, you're great. And he likes her and he says, why don't you come in and screen test for this movie? She does mm-hmm. and she blows them away. She's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. She just has it. Like she looks amazing on camera. She's charismatic. She's adorable. So they fire the other girl and put her in because, mm-hmm. like, that's Hollywood, baby. She signs a two-week contract with the Fox Film Corporation at $150 a week, mm-hmm. which is about $3,000 a week in today's money. So it's like six grand for two weeks' work, which is, mm-hmm. you know, not bad. Mm-hmm. But she's so good. The second she finishes filming her one song and dance number, she's taken straight to the corporate offices and they lock her down for a one-year contract. They're like, she's amazing. We can't believe what she just did. Mm -hmm. And when she does, her mother gives them a forged birth certificate saying she's one year younger than she is. So she's five, (laughs) but her mum tells them that she's four. And she does not find out about this until her 12th birthday when her mum tells her she's actually turning 13. Uh-huh. Wow. So her mum was like, I better just buy an extra year while I while I can. <laughs> um <laughs> and she is the standout in this mo- movie. Like even amongst adults in the film, Stand Up in Cheer is basically just a bunch of musical numbers with some story very loosely tying them together. Mm. And it doesn't do that well critically, but what everyone agrees on is that little girl Shirley Temple stole the whole movie with her one musical number. It's called Baby Take a Bow, and mm. in it she does a duet with a male uh, adult actor called... Uh, when I say adult, it sounds like a porn actor. It like does, a male yeah. grown-up actor <laughs> called James Dunn. Mm. And um, it's the first time she does the very famous thing that it's in all the photos you see of her where she puts her little finger on her chin mm. and does this. Mm-hmm. You can't see me, guys, but I'm, like, doing a very cute Shirley Temple face. Kind of um, looks like you're squeezing a pimple one-handed, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm, like that. You know, it's just very like, I'm so cute, look at me. So Fox quickly writes a film just for her and her talents because they're like, she was wasted doing one number in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, let's write films just based around her. So the next film they write is called Baby Take a Bow, which is named after the song she did in that other movie. Mm-hmm. In it, she's called Shirley and James Dunn again plays the male um, grown-up actor opposite her. And mm-hmm. then they quickly make a third film called Bright Eyes in which, again, she plays a girl called Shirley and James Dunn plays the grown-up male character opposite her because mm-hmm. they've got a formula and they want to stick to it. They're like James Dunn and Shirley Temple are really cute together, mm-hmm. so let's just go for it. Mm-hmm. And they want to get as much out of them as they possibly can because, you know, she'll um, get old soon. Mm-hmm. So um, Bright Eyes is what uh, uh, has the song that is her most famous song that most people have heard on the good ship Lollipop. Have you heard it? That song sounds familiar, yes. Goes, okay, ready, ready, ready. On the good ship Lollipop, gonna take a trip to the candy shop. Something, something. Mm-hmm. That's that mm-hmm. song. It's mm-hmm. quite famous. Mm-hmm. And the formula of her movies 
was pretty much always the same, which is why they needed James Dunn in them. So always at the start, something awful happens, which causes her to lose either her mother or both her parents. And then through being like precocious and sweet, she convinces a gruff older man, either her widowed father or some other random man to adopt Mm. her. Uh So in one film... And it's always, like, really dark. Like, in one film, her mother dies in a car crash while on the way to buy Shirley's birthday cake. Oh! Yeah, I know. (laughs) And in another film, get this, her dad drops her off at the TAB, like the betting place, (laughs) as collateral for a bet he made on a horse. And then the horse he bet on loses, so he kills himself and she is orphaned. Yeah. It's grim. But then just like through being adorable and a little, little, you know, bundle of roses Mm. and cute things, she like makes it through. And it is kind of just what the country needs because it's the Great Depression. Everyone's poor. Everyone's struggling. Mm. So to see this astonishingly adorable little girl like Mm. overcome adversity and sing and dance and end up happy like these films become what people said were getting the country through the depression like literally president roosevelt thanked her personally for helping get the country through the depression that's what people were saying about her he said quote it is a splendid thing that for just 15 cents an american can go to a movie and look at the smiling face of a baby and forget his troubles. <laughs> I guess the closest yeah. thing our generation had to that was Macaulay Culkin, I guess. like Yeah, or like Dakota Fanning later. Star. Yeah, that everyone sort of unanimously is just blown away by their talent yeah. and their skill. They're universally loved and adored and worshipped. Oh, Mara Wilson. From like mm, uh, Matilda. Mrs. Doubtfire, Matilda, and she writes a lot now about how when she got older, she didn't transition from cute into beautiful. She transitioned from cute into average looking. And mm. so she would go for all these roles that girls like Scarlett Johansson were going for when they were little and she would get them all because she was cute and she was a good actress. But then when she turned like 12, 13 and was really awkward looking, she just stopped getting roles and that's when the girls who you know, blossomed quite traditionally, beautifully, went on to become mega famous. And she was like, oh, mm-hmm. where, what do I do now? Mm. She's her, forged um, a really good career for herself though, right? Oh, she's, yeah, she went to university and she's like a really famous writer now. And um, she wrote an amazing memoir. Um, gosh, I forget what it's called, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's really good and she's really funny. So mm-hmm. it's now 1934, her first Three movies have been huge hits. She's become a star and she's, like, only six, although they think she's five. There are, like, Shirley Temple lookalike contests all over the country. The Shirley Temple cocktail becomes a thing. She (gasps) later says, block your ears, kids, or skip ahead, parents. She later says she knew Santa wasn't real when her mother took her to the department store to get her picture taken for Christmas and he asked her for her autograph. (laughs) (laughs) He was just another hustling actor like her. (laughs) That's sad. She's mobbed. Everywhere she goes, she her fame reaches worldwide levels. She's given the very first juvenile Oscar in 1934 for her contribution to the um, cinema industry in that mm. year. And so at that point, her parents are like, wait, we deserve way more money and we need to get control over her brand because people, mm. like, they were annoyed about the Shirley Temple cocktail thing, like, mocktail thing. Like, so they wanted to, like... If, if people are going to make money out of this, it should be us. Mm-hmm. So they hire a lawyer who negotiates, like, a nutso deal for her. She's, like, right now Fox Studios' biggest money-making star, so they're desperate to keep her. Mm-hmm. So she gets um, uh, – she goes from $150 a week to $1,000 a week, mm-hmm. which because of the depression – so I think that – This is, like, weird. So you know how in today's money you're like, oh, that would be this much, right? But Mm. because of the depression, the value of a dollar was, like, so messed up that it was worth even more than that. So her $1,000 a week had the economic value of $123,000 in today's money. And she would also get a bonus of $15,000 for each completed film, which would have 
the value today of $296,000, but because of the depression, the economic purchasing power of over a million dollars she would get for on completing each film. Her film. And um, wow. there was this quote that was like, you know, and this is at a time when you could buy an entire meal for a quarter. And that's the <laughs> amount of money she has. Like, so she has not so money. The mm. deal also got her mother $250 a week for being her hairstylist and minder. <laughs> and her dad got a similar salary for helping manage her finances, which uh-huh. he did. But he would give her a strict allowance of $15 a week. And mm. he put the rest of the money into a trust that she would get when she turned 21. So mm. she's now five years old and her whole family is dependent on her for money now. Like her parents and she's are one only of the richest making people in the country. Yeah. And her parents are only making money if she makes money. So she has to work. Yeah. Really hard. Mm. And so over the next few years, she just does movie after movie after movie after movie after movie. There's commercial deals. There's dolls that look like her that she needs to do shopping center appearances for. She does TV. She does radio. She does every appearance. The president is saying to her, like, you are the only thing making us happy. And her parents <laughs> are like, you're the only thing making us money. Mm. So she just works a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's pretty much the most famous person in the country. And her life is weird. Like, they build her her own bungalow at Fox Studios. Um, It has a picket fence, a tree with a swing, a burrow for rabbits, and a painting of her inside as a fairy princess. It's like everybody just wants her to be this perfect little doll. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a tutor, so she doesn't go to school. In fact, she's not really allowed to talk to kids most of the time. Kids um, on set say that uh, she has a stand-in who does everything, like all the rehearsals, all the lighting. She'll only come down at the last minute to film her scene and then leave. And the kids are told, you are not allowed to talk to her while she's here. Like, Aww. so... Yeah, they're not allowed to talk to her. Fox makes her these massive big birthday parties each year when it's her birthday, so they, they're kind of like these televised publicity events, Shirley Temple's mm. birthday parties, and hundreds of kids are invited to the Fox lot but later say that um, they weren't allowed to talk to her. They were basically there as extras for mm. her party. Mm. She pretty much only hangs out with, like, Fox executives' kids when they are sometimes at the studio. There's a team of 19 writers called the Shirley Temple Development Team and it's their job year-round to just write content for her, movies Mm -hmm. for her. She works all day, every day. At night she goes home to, like, this huge mansion that her parents have bought with her money. Mm. Um, But mostly she has to work at night too. Like she's turning six, then seven, then eight. So she's growing up. Her mum has to keep her looking young. Mm. Her mum has to put the 56 um, rag curl ringlets in her hair every night, Uh which takes a couple of hours. So she learns her lines while her mum's doing that. She Mm. also gets her hair soaked in detergent and peroxide and vinegar every week to keep it blonde. (laughs) She starts losing teeth too, which is a huge deal. She's constantly at the dentist getting like painful procedures like caps and stuff because they didn't have flippers back then. You know how little beauty pageant girls now just have like a retainer with a fake tooth on it that they can slip on and off. Mm. Back then, if you lost your baby tooth, you had to get a a crown, like a fake tooth put in. Oh, I know. That's abuse. She's getting these teeth put in. Um. There's one actor who told this really famous story that he was once sitting with the president of Fox just on the studio lot one day and this panicked assistant came running over, like he looked really stressed. And the guy was thinking, oh, my God, what's happening? Like someone died and he whispered something in the president of Fox's ear and then the president shot up and started walking off really fast and he was like, what happened? And he said, Shirley Temple lost a tooth. (laughs) So they're like off to like fix it because, you know, she has to go to the dentist and get that means losing a day of filming it's money Mm. she is um doing her hands and feet at the grauman's chinese theater you know when you put your hands and feet in the cement and during the ceremony there's like hundreds of photographers there taking pictures of her while she's doing it and her tooth she feels her front tooth fall out in her mouth (gasps) 
Uh-huh. But she's a professional. So she just keeps her mouth closed and only does a closed mouth smile. And they're mm. all getting really annoyed at her that she's not doing her cute Shirley Temple dimple smile. And so mm. to distract them, she decides to take her shoes off and put her bare feet in the cement, which no one's ever done before. And she starts doing a little tap dance. And they're all like, oh, she's so cute and funny. She put her feet in. And it was like, that's just a six-year-old being hella smart and like knowing. So she- savvy. Right. So she's. You know, she has to be, like, wise beyond her years um, because, you know, she's a professional. She's a hard worker. She knows you've got to get the job done. It's all she's ever known. One mm. year she's performing on Christmas Eve um, doing a song and dance number at a big live concert. A woman in the audience stands up and points a loaded gun at her. <gasps> oh. Security immediately, like, jump on the woman and pull her out and Shirley does not stop performing. She just keeps going. And it turns out later that um, the woman had this crazy vendetta against her because her daughter had been born on the same day as Shirley but had died a few days later and she thinks that Shirley stole the soul of her baby daughter and so she needed to kill her. But what the woman didn't know is that they're all lying about her age, so Shirley was yeah. actually born a year <laughs> earlier. But, um, yeah, so she didn't. St- a woman stood up and pointed a gun at her and she did not stop singing. She clocked it. She saw it. She looked in the audience yeah. and saw the barrel of the Because the whole gun audience was like, oh, my God, a gun and security. Oh. Like you, Yeah, it was a thing. Like, it reminds me of um, Jenna Maroney from 30 Rock, you know, when her mum's like <laughs> making her dance, like when there's a <laughs> alligator next to her. It's, yeah. it's insane. It's insane. Um, but It's brainwashing. You know, she, She's that good. She's that professional. And um, that's why the rumour starts to go around that she's actually a middle-aged woman with dwarfism because nobody believes a child could do what she could do. Mm. And that is when, like you mentioned, yes, the Vatican became very invested in whether or not Shirley Temple was actually a little girl. So they sent a priest from the Vatican out to the US to confirm that Shirley Temple was actually... Like six years old and not a 45-year-old little person. Do you know why the Vatican specifically? I don't know. They just got very caught up in it. So I think because she was the epitome of all that was sweet and pure, she was such an important symbol around the world. And so to hear that maybe she wasn't, it was important to get proof. I don't know how they got proof. I guess he just met her. I don't know. Yeah, I don't want to go down that road. I don't (laughs) want to think about that too much, that one. Maybe because she was taking attention away from Jesus, they needed to make sure. It's that strange, man. Anyway, they became invested. They they cared. Mm. Actors who worked with her at the time said that, like, she was, it was scary how good she was. Like, she was just a freak how good she was. Like, usually they hire older kids who look younger because they're mature enough to handle the work, but she was a younger kid who was mature and talented enough to handle the work. So it was like a one in a million talent, but also a one in a million personality that she was able to do Mm. it. And she really was breathtaking. Like to watch some of her dance numbers, a very famous one she does is on the stairs. It's from a film called The Little Colonel and she's on the stairs with an actor called Bill Bojangles Robinson and he was um, mm. the first black man to be a headline performer in a Broadway show. He's considered one of the greatest tap dancers of all time. She did a couple of films with him that are definitely problematic and racist and minstrelsy mm. by today's standards. But, you know, she, she even said that later in life. But at the time she was six years old, like she didn't know. Mm. But to watch them dance in perfect unison is it's really something to behold. And you can go and watch it on YouTube. Bill Robinson taught her all the dance numbers um, they did together by closing his eyes and listening to her feet. And so then she started learning to dance that way too. Like he really taught her how to feel and hear the rhythm rather than memorise mm-hmm. steps. And she said later that the dance scenes she did with him were probably like some of the greatest moments of pure joy in her life. Like she was Mm. doing something she was great at. She was enjoying herself so much. And you can see it, the two of them dancing together. It is crazy. Like he is one of the absolute greats and she's a six-year-old and and Mm. 
it's it's nuts. You got to watch it. It's crazy how good she was. They were dear dear friends until his death, and he mm. was one of the only men in Hollywood who didn't exploit her like for work or you know whatever. Mm. They even held hands on camera during a dance, which was the first time. It was the first time a black and a white duet duo who danced together on film, and the part where they held mm. hands was actually cut from the film when it was shown like in the southern <gasps> states because people there couldn't oh, handle. God. They could maybe handle them dancing together but not holding hands. And so he considered her like a daughter and she considered him like a father and they were very, very close and it seems like they had a really beautiful um, relationship. So I think... Well, they were both being exploited, right? Yeah, oh, no, they both were. But, I mean, not of each... Not each other. They're not exploiting... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's not exploiting her, you know what I mean? Like, because most of the men she worked with were just trying to get something out of Mm. her commercial potential. Like, and to them, it just seemed like they shared these moments where they were just two people who really effing loved to dance and were both great at it and loved doing it Mm. together. And I bring up that, like, she did a gazillion movies, but I bring up those, that example specifically, because it really is when you go and look at it, an example of how exceptionally talented she was as a dancer. Like, it was, Mm. it's amazing to watch but you know you can't stop time and she's getting Mm. older not that much older to like seriously I need to point out like from Mm. 1935 to 38 she was the top grossing movie star in the world and she's about to turn nine as far as she knows she's Mm. not as cute as she once was and all her films are based around her being this baby doll orphan Um, Her films start to get bad reviews mostly because of her acting because she's a phenomenal dancer. She's an okay singer, but she she can't really act. Like, Mm. she's a great performer. She's got charisma, but she can't really act. Um, Mm. Her whole thing was all about being cute and charming and cheeky. And as she gets older, she can't really pull that off anymore. So she actually needs to start acting and she's not Mm. great at it. She gets offered the role of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz in 1939 when she's 11, but she is under contract at Fox Studios and Mm. The Wizard of Oz is at MGM. And Fox Studios have decided they're going to start investing in transitioning her from a child star to a teen actress Mm -hmm. and they think that um, The Wizard of Oz is too childish and so they Mm -hmm. refuse to lend her to MGM to film The Wizard of Oz. Because wow. they're trying to get her into more serious roles. Oh, you know, she must off. have been so gutted they, when she they saw put how her huge in their, that movie became. Yeah, they put her in their own version called The Bluebird, which is pretty much like a blatant ripoff of The Wizard of Oz, and it's just not good. It's not good. Mm. They put her in a bunch of movies that flop, and then in 1940, age 12, just two years after she was the biggest box office earner and movie star in the world, Fox cancels her contract and drops her. She's um, out. She's like because she got her period. Not hot property anymore. Um, they get rid of any trace of her at her bungalow and turn it into an office. It's like she was never there. Like it really um, is Hollywood just takes people in, milks everything they can, and then just says, bye. Spits them out. So her parents decide to send her to school because she's never been before, so she's excited. She Mm. goes to the Westlake School for Girls for two years, and um, when she's 14, she signs a new contract with MGM, but she goes to a meeting with a producer called Arthur Freed and in the meeting he says, I want to show you something, and she looks down and he's got his dick out. Oh. And And, um, she's 14, but she's very sheltered and naive. And she says later that she'd never seen a naked body before besides her own. So she didn't even know what she was looking at. And she she sort of just like burst out laughing because she didn't know what to do. And then this is the male effing ego. He got so offended that she laughed that he kicked her out of his office and no films were ever made with her. (gasps) Yeah. Gender dynamics. Yes. Bullshit. I'm offended that this child I just tried to abuse giggled at my penis 
So I, uh, <laughs> it's truly, I have no speech. I have no speech. So we know this story from her. Her autobiography. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. A couple of years later, she signs a contract with David Selznick, the man who made Gone with the Wind. She's 16 at this point. He also propositions her when alone in his office. And when she tries to run out the door, he has a button under his desk that locks it. <gasps> oh. Like Matt Lauer yeah. at NBC. They said he had that. And so he kind of like hustles around the room like of his office, like trying to sort of, you know, abuse her Mm. Um, and she keeps kind of just running away from him and eventually he just gets bored and he's like, well, get lost then. And um, so she leaves. She does make a couple of films with him, but they're not great. Um, She's pretty average in them Mm. because her true talent was dancing and performing, not acting. And Mm. at this age Mm. she needs to be in films where she pretty much just acts. Mm -hmm. So she's going to Westlake school on and off while making these films and after a while she just realises she's not wanted in Hollywood anymore. So she switches Mm. her focus to getting married because when you're 16 in the 40s, like that's what you did back then. She was very competitive. She liked to be the best at everything. And so she sort of said, you know, I decided I was going to be the first girl in my class to get married because that's what we all wanted Mm. to do was get married. So she marries a friend's brother when she's 17. He's in the army and he's like super good looking. And she Mm. likes that he has nothing to do with show business. Like he's just an army dude. But not long after they marry, a producer says to him, hey, you're handsome. Do you want to be in the movies? And he's like, yes, I do. So he kind of, it turns out, just married her because he wanted to be famous. And because she, you know, has been raised to be a good wife and to do what your Mm. husband asks, she agrees to star in a bunch of movies with him because it's like a novelty, like Shirley Temple and her husband, and he's Mm -hmm. not, you know, a star, so he can't do it by himself. Those Mm -hmm. movies mostly flop. He tries to get acting roles without her, but he can't, no one wants him. So then he starts to get really jealous and shitty about it. He starts drinking Mm. and becomes really abusive and then they're like, you know what will calm everything down? Let's have a baby. So they have a baby. Mm. Um, but then she's like, no, screw you. I'm out. And so she, mm. like, just leaves him. She tries to act in a few more movies, but she isn't getting anywhere. And some producers tell her that she needs to get acting lessons. Like, you're not good at acting. And she's like, no, I don't. Mm. I'm Shirley frickin' Temple. Like, I don't. So she auditions mm. to play Peter Pan in a production of Peter Pan on Broadway thinking it's Mm -hmm. perfect for her and she doesn't Mm -hmm. even come close to getting it. Like she's just not considered talented enough to get it. And that's when Mm. she steps back and is like, shit, maybe I'm just not very good at Mm. this. Mm. So she officially announces her retirement from acting in 1950. She's Mm -hmm. 22, divorced and with a baby. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> she's lived a full life and she's actually 22 at this point. She's, she's not, 22, yes. That's her the parents real age. told her her real age on her 12th birthday. They were like, oh, by the way, you're turning, you're not turning 12, you're turning 13. So she found out mm-hmm. then. And so this is when she's like, okay, I'm going to need all that money my dad put aside for me from like the years and years and years I worked my ass off and lost Uh-oh. my childhood for that Uh-oh. was put into a trust until I turned 21. I'm now 22, so I'm going to go ask my dad for that money. Mm. Um, it's gone. Uh-oh. He didn't put it in a trust like he was meant to. Mm. He invested it all in just crazy things and spent it on nonsense and lost it. She was expecting to get millions of dollars when she turned 21. It turned out all that was left was about $30,000. Oh. Yeah. And she was like, well, shit. Um, she took it really well, though. She's like, mm. she didn't cut her parents off. It wasn't a Macaulay Culkin situation. Like she was just like, well, what's done is done. I guess I'm going to have to start working, figure something out. Mm -hmm. You know, she's only 22. She Mm -hmm. goes on a trip to, I think, Hawaii, and she meets this guy called Charles Black. He's a Mm -hmm. Navy dude. She likes him. They're flirting a bit. And about an hour into their conversation, he says to her, oh, so what do you do for a living? And he Mm. has no clue who she is, which she loves. Mm. And they get married two weeks later and stay together for the rest of their lives. 
Oh, yeah. She's used to living on hardly any money because her parents were always really strict with her allowance and stuff. So, like, she never really got any of the millions she earned. Mm. So living on his Navy salary doesn't really bother her. So she's just like, yay, I'm going to become a housewife with this man I love and he'll go do his Navy stuff. Um, Mm. So they have two kids and that's on top of the daughter she already had with the first dodgy dude. Mm. When he's discharged from the Navy, he gets like just some regular management job somewhere. She starts doing charity work and this is when she realises that charity work can be a way for her to utilise her talents because Mm -hmm. she's a performer, she's charismatic, she has a name that people know, so she's really Mm -hmm. good at being a face for charities and she's, Mm -hmm. through that work, starting to travel internationally as an ambassador for those charities Mm -hmm. and um, she's really good at it. She's really good at just relating to people and, you know, holding a room with her charisma and raising money and all that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and while she's in Czechoslovakia, Slovakia on a, some kind of ambassadorial trip for a, an MS charity. Um, she's in a hotel room one night when the Soviet Union invades. So they're all scrambling to get them out of the country and she's just in her hotel room, not sure what to do. And she looks out the window and there's a bunch of Czechoslovakian protesters and one mm. woman raises her fist at someone from the Soviet Union and they shoot mm. and kill her instantly. And... Mm. Shirley sees this and is just horrified and it sticks with her and that's when she decides to devote her life to what she was doing when she was little during the Depression. She decides, I'm going Mm. to, like, use my skills and talents to spread American values throughout the world because she never wants Mm -hmm. to see anything like that happen again. So she decides she wants to get into politics with a particular interest in international relations. She works tirelessly for the Republican Party. She is a Republican, um, Mm. but she's less focused on domestic policy. She's more interested in international relations. Um, She travels Uh extensively for, like, international relations purposes on behalf of the Republican Party and Mm. is eventually made the U.S. ambassador to Ghana in 1974 when she's 46. And she's Uh also appointed the first female chief of protocol of the United States, which is the it's an incredibly important position. You are the one person in the United States that the president goes to to ask for advice on protocols of any country in the world because she's so learned and smart about like, okay, so if you wow. go to this country, protocol is to behave this way and to do this and don't mm. offend them by doing this. So she is the chief protocol officer of the United States, first female one ever. Wow. She's diagnosed <gasps> with um, breast cancer when she's 44. And you know mm. the crazy thing, back at this time, cancer and particularly breast cancer was not talked about openly And Mm. often when doctors discovered that women had breast cancer, they wouldn't tell them. They would only tell their husbands because they decided Mm. that women weren't able to handle that kind of news. And then Mm. they would tell them that they were putting them um, under general anesthesia just to take a biopsy. And Mm. while they were under general anesthesia, they would actually just perform a mastectomy. And then (gasps) when they wake up, they'd go, actually, you had cancer and we have taken one or both of your breasts. (gasps) And so that's how women were treated back then when it came to it because they were like, they can't handle knowing they have it, so we'll just take care of it without without telling them. Oh, Oh, that's shocking. Shirley's doctors did tell her that she had breast cancer and she made the choice to have a mastectomy and then she's so effing baller because she was so angry about how most women get treated and she was so angry that she was privileged enough to be able to have autonomy over her own body and this medical choice. She holds a press conference from her hospital bed after her operation talking about breast cancer, talking about her diagnosis, talking about the fact she had just had a mastectomy and teaching women how to check their own breasts for lumps so they don't have to rely on male doctors in their lives not telling them Mm -hmm. what's wrong with them. How boring is that? She's so cool. And this is the 1960s, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, around 7, 60s, 70s. I'm not good at maths. Yeah, it's okay, just 44. But women's lib is starting to sort of take off yeah. and, you know, more and more rights are being accumulated yes. by women that they should have always had, of course. 
So after being the uh, chief protocol officer of the United States and the official ambassador to Ghana. She sits on a bunch of boards of companies. Um, She advises lots of presidents. And then in 1989, aged 61, President Mm -hmm. Bush Sr. makes her the ambassador to Czechoslovakia, which was the place that had first inspired her to devote her life to international relations. So Mm -hmm. for her, it was a really honourable post that she got to go back to that place. Mm. Her husband, Charles Black, dies in 2005 after 54 years of marriage. Wow. And Shirley Temple Black died in 2014, aged 85, from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease due to being a lifelong chain smoker, which nobody knew because she never did it in front of her fans Mm. or the public because she didn't want to disappoint them. And that is just the gist of the incredible, amazing Shirley Temple Black. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, First woman to be the chief protocol officer of the United States. One of the Mm. first women to be official ambassadors to any other country from the United States. Uh, Advised pretty much every president on international relations protocol for the last, like, you know, 30 years of her life. Wow. And so no one had any clue that she smoked. No, I don't think so. Until she died and they found yeah. out that's what killed her. I mean, I'm sure her friends and family knew, but, yeah, she made sure to never do it in public because she didn't want to disappoint people. I would love to know when she started. I reckon mm. when she was, like, seven. It would have been when she was so young. Probably because the other thing I was going to say was she's lucky that she dodged the bullet that, um, you know, led to Judy Garland's demise in so many ways that they started drugging her. Yeah. yeah. When she was prepubescent, they were giving her speed to keep her metabolism up and keep her slim. I think a big part of it was that Judy Garland was actually extremely talented actress and singer whole package. And so when she started aging up and hitting puberty, they wanted her to keep working because she was so good. When Mm -hmm. Shirley Temple got a little bit older, it was like, you're also not very good at this anymore. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not going to invest all of that energy and time and money in keeping her looking a certain way when she's not going to get cast in the roles anyway. I mean, she freely admitted later that she wasn't a great actress. She was a great performer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, I think that she's incredibly lucky that she was able to remove oh, herself yeah. from Big that time. industry. Like the freedoms that she got to finally experience and enjoy in, you know, the final three th- uh, quarters of her life. That yeah. seems like it was so much more fulfilling for her. But, yeah, the hiding the smoking thing, that reminds me of Dolly Parton. <laughs> so many people have no idea that Dolly Parton has quite a lot of tattoos. But she oh, really? never shows them. Yeah, that's why she always wears long sleeves, often has quite a oh. high collar. She's always got the, um, the gloves on as well. It's not just a, she doesn't want to show skin because the skin is ageing and maybe looking a bit creepy. She doesn't yeah. want people to know that she's got tattoos. She doesn't deny it. She just doesn't put them on display because she knows that Wowzers. it's polarising for some people. And, you know, her... Um, entire brand is about universal appeal. Yeah. Mm. Everyone can love Dolly. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I, I just, rem- I think Shirley Temple is this name that everyone's like, oh yeah, I know Shirley Temple and you know the pictures of her and you know, she looks like this little dimply, you know, ringlet haired cherub, but then it's like, oh, so what happened to her? And people are like, I don't know. Like, no, Mm. but, like, she went on to have this incredible groundbreaking career for a woman Mm. in the U.S. government and on the international stage as an ambassador and diplomat. Like, it's Mm. nuts. Um, And good for her. So she's ended up being much more of a Mara Wilson type than a, what, Lindsay Lohan type. yeah. Yeah, she, you know, accepted that that was not a world that was going to accept her anymore that had no need for her anymore and so she pivoted Mm. and started doing other stuff and realized that her talents like I I think it's really 
beautiful that when she started doing charity work and then the ambassador stuff, she was like, oh, my talents don't just have to be for performing on a stage or Mm. in a film. Like these talents can be utilised in other ways. Mm. And I think that's something a lot of people probably learn like, when they finish high school or when they finish uni and they're not getting the job they want and you go, oh, okay, um, wait, I have these talents that my life isn't going the direction I thought it would, but what I have still isn't worthless. I can mm. apply it to other things, you know, mm. and that's what she did and she ended up loving it. Super admirable and, like, hopefully she felt that it was really fortunate as well that she no longer had to be a commodity for the studios, which meant that Mm. she could then go and forge her own path and become an asset in a different way. Yeah. With a lot more control and power. That was such a great story. Thank you. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, it was a bit different. I was like, well, it's just, yeah, like it's just a story of someone's life, but, um, fascinating life. So good. So we give you just the gist. If you want more, I'll put, um, all the stuff I researched in the show notes. Her autobiography is called uh, Child Star by mm. Shirley Temple Black. There's a lot of juicy stuff in there. That's where she talks a lot about, you know, the black box and the ice and um, the work she got put through as a young kid and also the times that she was sexually harassed. And she even specifically says in the book, I could name a lot more names, but mm. I'm not going to. Those are just the couple that she specifically mentioned, but it sounds like it happened a lot. Um, Mm. There's also another book called The Little Girl Who Fought the Great Depression, um, which I listened to. And um, there was a few podcast episodes and there is a hundred gazillion documentaries on YouTube and stuff. So I watched a bunch of those. I'll put it all in the show notes, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot out there, but I find that different things focus on different, like there are some documentaries that are just like, here's the beautiful story of America's sweetheart and everything was fine. And Mm. then there are other documentaries that are like, this is the dark side behind Shirley Temple's life and everything was horrible and abusive. And when you sort of collate all that stuff together, you just get what is what you always get, which is a complex, nuanced life with lots of shades of grey and there were good parts and bad parts and Mm. it wasn't all good or all bad. She looks back quite fondly on a lot of her time as a child star. So, But other parts she's like, yeah, that in hindsight that was pretty bad. (laughs) 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 But, yeah, she's just... I've become obsessed with her the last few weeks looking into this. So... She's a fascinating lady. Very cool. Very, very cool. Love it. Alrighty. Well, thanks, guys, and um, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Listener.